0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Kaderna Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. In today's episode, I'll be sitting down with Tom Siomatis to talk about an economic forecast for 2023. Needless to say, this is an episode you're not gonna wanna miss. If you don't know who Tom is, let me give you a quick background. Tom Siomatis is the Chief Investment Officer of AE Wealth Management. He is a Chartered Financial Analyst, or CFA, with over 30 years of industry experience. Previously, Tom was the Managing Director of Hartford Funds, in which he oversaw more than $100 billion of assets under management. Tom is a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point, and later earned a master's degree from Webster University. We're going to talk about how being an officer in the Army and leading men into battle helped translate to a successful career in investing. Our conversation is going to cover not just what's in store for 2023, but we'll really take a deep dive into today's global economy, including inflation, investment philosophies, how the Fed can engineer a soft landing, and China versus the US, the state of our two global superpowers. Now, if you follow me, you'll realize a lot of these topics are at the core of my upcoming book, again, which is titled, What Should I Do With My Money? Economic Insights to Build Wealth Amid Chaos. You can now pre-order that wherever books are sold, or pick up a copy at our book launch in February of 2023. So without further ado, let's welcome Tom Ciamatis. It's
1: going to require work, and time, and
2: sweat, and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Canada Podcast.
0: Tom, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on, Brian. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. It's been a, a crazy year, definitely a lot of talking points, and um, I think that we're going to have a lot to go over today.
1: It's like, what a decade we've had this year. It kind of was exhausting, <laughs> I had a little bit of everything, and it was kind of one of those things where, you know, I'm, I'm kind of excited for it to end, but I'm also dreading it to end, too, because, you know, there's just so much on the table right now. And I'm sure we'll get into some of it, but it's just, it, it has been an up and down emotional r- roller coaster, to say the least as far as stocks and the, you know, in
0: the economy is concerned. Yeah, without a doubt. But maybe we did get a little reprieve for you. I know in your bio, we mentioned that you're a West Point grad and you guys had a pretty big win last week.
1: Yeah, that was awesome. Uh, you know, it's, you always enter those games, you know, with a lot of trepidation because obviously, you know, they want to win as bad as we do. And it always seems like when you're a fan, right, and, and, and you're invested, you always feel like you always get the, you know, the wrong end of the deal, right? It's always kind of one of those things where you think to yourself, well, you know, if anything wrong can happen, it'll happen to us. And, you know, lo and behold, sometimes, you know, it, it's law of averages, right? It all regresses to the mean. And we yeah. were fortunate because we had a really good team last year and we, like, you know, we blew it. And then this year it was pretty much a toss up and they, you know, they, they managed to find a path to defeat, for, to kick us off the path to defeat. So, you know, it was, a uh, it was exciting and, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was something to watch and it was, um, uh, you know, just yeah. as an aside, my son, he started at the Academy this, um, this past summer. So oh, wow. it was extra, extra strange too. Cause my freshman year, we tied a very he- heavily favored Navy team. And you know, back in the day they didn't have these overtime rules that they have in college. so it was kind of ironic that had those rules never come along, I tied my freshman year at West Point and so did so would he have at that point. So kind of like wow, small- that's
0: like yeah, yeah, that's kind of freaky. <laughs> yeah and because that was the first overtime game in Army Navy history, right?
1: Yeah, there had been ties, right? But like I said yeah. that the ties uh, were just that, you know, the game ended they they blew the whistle and it was a tie and that's how it went into the into the record books and we had since the modern and I forget when the when they instituted the new overtime rules for college football but uh yeah this is the first time it ended in a tie where those rules had to apply
0: yeah and that for your son i mean that must be can't get more exciting than that for freshman year oh,
1: yeah. pretty what cool what else is left at this point right i mean it's like, exactly how <laughs> much higher can you go
0: <laughs> how do you top that one and you hear so much about the connection between West Point or Annapolis, you know, just breeding these leaders from presidents to big time CEOs or in the armed services climbing the ranks. How would you say that's played in effect on you and what you've done, be it in your personal life or professionally to where you now you are maybe 30 years later, uh, you know, running these huge portfolios?
1: yeah, I, I think what what the biggest thing that, that you get out of any service academy experience in my opinion is obviously you get steeped in a, in 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 a lot of leadership techniques, and you know you get to learn from you know the premier leadership institutions in the world, right? So you know that that's without without a doubt because obviously the stakes are high. you know, you get commissioned, you go into the the, the Army Navy wherever. And you have people that you're responsible for, right? And I mean, so you know, you have a mission you have to accomplish, but at the end of the day, that mission involves people, and it also involves, um, you know, the potential for for people to get hurt. And so I think you know, there's that heaviness that comes with with that through the entire process as you go through. But the other things that you're taught are things that you know, oftentimes we take for granted. You know, at the end of a, of a resume. It'll say like, you know, you have leadership and communication skills. Everyone puts that on their resume. But what does that mean, right? So, you know, places like West Point, you're taught time, time management. You're taught about, you know, prioritizing things and, and learning to find alternatives when solutions aren't obvious. Then I think that applies uh, very much so to the financial um, sort of realm as well, right? Because you basically have, you know, you're dealing with the fog of finance rather than the fog of war on a daily basis, right? There's so many inputs. When you step on a battlefield, you have a plan, but it's like Mike Tyson said, right? Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face the first time. So what happens you get on a battlefield and you know, you had your plan. Well, it doesn't work. You go someplace and there aren't the people there that were supposed to be there. So you have to improvise. And it's the same thing with, with, you know, the markets. We have so much information pummeling us that you have to be sort of, organized, prioritized. Uh, you have to see what the end goal is at the end of it. And, and so it helps you focus uh, on, on the task at hand. And, you know, you try to do it in the best way you can uh, using the inputs that you have. But, you, but I think learning flexibility, dealing with adversity, uh, I think those are all important sort of things. Um, you know touchstones that you should have, and I and I think it's 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 funny because I was a, I was an infantry officer, right? So you think like you get out and they're like, well, what are the civilian applications of jumping out of airplanes or digging foxholes or or laying down fields of fire? Well, there aren't any, but the fact of it is, the ability to organize and lead people to to a level and a standard and and to accomplish a mission should be applicable in all aspects of business. So that was kind of why why that helped, you know, all that background I lean on to help me in the, in the management of, of uh, portfolios and manager evaluation and dealing with clients and, 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 you know, their goals as well.
0: And that's brings me to another point, like that experience that you had at West Point and thereafter in the army, it, does it make things in a way seem easier? You know, as you, as you go through life and you take on these other positions in finance, does it, um, maybe bring the stress level down of leading men into battle versus maybe leading men to or and women, of course, to to manage you know portfolios and people's life savings,
1: yeah. I mean, I think anytime you have a sense of perspective in anything you do, it helps deal with a current situation. so let's let's put it this way. If you've never been under stress before, you don't know how you would react. There's a lot of, there's both the physical and the mental aspect of reacting to stress. And, you know, studies have shown that it's, people don't handle it well, right? But, you know, for example, uh, at West Point, they have a, um, when I was there, they had what's known as plead boxing, right? Because Mm -hmm. some genius psychiatrist back in the 40s said, you know, if you put young men in a ring and they beat each other, they're gonna experience stress. I'm like, yeah, I would imagine too. If you're getting punched in the face by somebody, you're probably gonna experience stress. So then so then that triggers sort of that fight or flight, um, you know, reflex. And and if and if you've never been there, I mean I'm always reminded, I mean, do you remember that book, The Red Badge of Courage? And in in the very first, you know, first part of the book, uh, that Stephen Crane wrote, where you know the antagonists they they run in battle. Why? Because they've never been in battle before, right? So they've never had that that stressor. So you know, I think to me, like the more experiences you can heap on folks early on, it gives you an opportunity to just sort of step back and say, Oh well, I felt this before, and this is how I reacted, and you know, this is well, this was the outcome. So how do I fix? the situation without getting my emotions in the way or, or or reacting rashly so yeah i think it lays a very nice foundation um you know or case in point i mean being cold and wet i mean if you've never been cold and wet you're going to be behaving a different way than you had experienced it i mean i'm not saying it's comfortable at any point in time or hungry yeah. but at the end of the day it's like okay so it didn't kill me and you know, I, I figured out a way to get through it, and so you know that is applicable to situations where you know markets are behaving crazy or irrationally, and, and people are throwing. And I think you know we never give enough um, we never give enough due to the emotional aspect of, our, of of the markets. I think there's there's a huge emotional component, but um, when we see markets down eight hundred points or up a thousand points or you know things that don't seem to matter or make sense in an academic way all of a sudden happen in markets and i think if you don't have a way to sort of measure your internal um you know your internal response to that stuff you can get caught up in it
0: yeah and as you're just saying all that it seems like in today's day and age like a lot of that is almost the exact opposite and i i talk about i have a book coming out in february next year and one of the things I talk about in education and higher learning is there's often touted, you know, a comfortable place to learn, a comfortable place to grow. And it seems like, you know, for an entrepreneur, certainly it's almost like an oxymoron where, where you're hearing comfort and growth. It's like if you try and make everything perfectly comfortable, you know, how much growing could you be you know, doing when you get out into the real world and have to encounter a lot of these variables like you
2: talked about?
1: Yeah. Well, why would you want to leave comfort? Right. I mean, and, you yeah, know, exactly. at, the the, at the end of the day, you know, struggle. I mean, that's how we got out of caves. That's how we, you know, stopped wearing animal skins. That's how we discovered fire and the wheel and all these other kinds of things. It's all about moving forward. Right. And, you know, and all of that is, is from where it's from a, a sense of thinking that things could be better. Now you could define things could be better as a form of discomfort, but if you're perfectly comfortable and happy with everything that's going on around you, why would you try to achieve something different? So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I kind of find that it's it's a bit of an oxymoron when when you talk about the things that, that you know, you mentioned. Um, I think college and, and education should be uncomfortable because you should think to yourself, what more can I learn? How much better can I be versus, hey, you know what? It's all good here. I've got everything I need why do I need anything else? So, you know, it, it, it teaches a sense of complacency that I think is becoming more and more rooted. And it's unfortunate because, you know, I think that's going to, you know, impact how we progress as a society and how we become a, hopefully become a better society if we don't have agitators. I mean, you look back and you look at, you know, some of the the great politicians and the, and the, and, you know, the, the, the Fords of the world and all these other people and, and, you know, the JP Morgans and all that. And then, you know, what do we have today? We've got Elon Musk. I mean, that, that's all we've, you know, we've got, or maybe a Jeff Bezos. And it's like, it seems like we're producing less of these type of people that sort of challenge the norm because we're just too happy with what we have and we're willing to accept with what's available.
0: And do you see that changing? I mean, uh... And this kind of dives down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, but I think it gives context to the global economy when you hear so much of, you know, now it's down to the U.S. and China and these two superpowers that are kind of guiding where the future will go. Um, Do you think there's a sense of complacency right now, or is that a lot of hype that that you're hearing about just young people and uh, TikTok? (laughs) Or is, you know, is that something that actually does need to get fixed?
1: It's funny you mentioned that, right? Because I think it's a, it, it's both. I mean, I've I've heard, and I don't know whether this is anecdotally where, how accurate this is, but TikTok in China, they have like physics videos and they have science videos and they have, you know, all of these sort of like, you know, a technology being used for the good and for the betterment of society. And in our country, our version of TikToks is, you know, people people are twerking and, and, and doing stupid tricks and, you know... Mogging, I guess, for to to borrow a kid's phrase, uh, you know, I, I don't know why that is, but but it don't in a lot of ways it's easy to get you know involved in conspiratorial type thinking. But let's face it, look, you know, boil it back, step back from this thing. China is an up and coming world power, okay? We have been the leader in the world for the past 70 years, right? Since the end of World War II. Do we want to give up that mantle? China sure as heck wants to be number one and it wants to, you know, hold sway and we're in the way. So, you know, you can get you can get really, really dark and start going down places and saying, well, you know, they're actively trying to undermine our culture, maybe. But if you know that, then why aren't you doing something about it? Why are you, you know, sort of complicit in that aspect of it, of, of letting it, you know, erode? I mean, if you see... If you see something, you know, in the garage that's rusting, why are you just leaving it there to rust? Why don't you take some, you know, some Brillo pad to it and, and some, you know, oil and get the rust off and get the tool working again. So there's there's some of that, but I mean, some of it is is active on the part of just competition between cultures. I mean, we've had that all along, right? From, from back formation times where cultures would clash, whether you had, you know, the Macedonians, you know, invading the Persian empire. And there was a clash of cultures there. And that went one way all the way up to modern day. So there's going to be competition between cultures. My my point is, is why create self-induced weakness, which seems like what we're doing. And I think that's rooted in what you just talked about a minute ago about comfort, right? I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. Hey, we're happy. We've got everything we need and we're, you know, we're willing to entertain things, that we wouldn't had we been struggling, right? So had we been looking for something better. So a lot of you know, without getting too philosophical, it's it, it it's a lot of it is just um you know perspective, right? Mm-hmm. What what do we want to do? And and you know, there's a contingent in the, in the country that wants to you know have this Coca-Cola moment, right? I want to teach the world to sing and share a Coke kind of thing. I don't know if I, if, if if you're too young for those, those commercials. (laughs) But, uh, but then there's another part that says, you know, well, we're, we're in in this world where we just crested 8 billion people and everyone's fighting for the same resources for, for the water, for the, for the, you know, oil and the minerals and all that other stuff. And do we want to lower our standard of living here in this country and bring everybody up? Or do we just want to, Hey, we're winning the marathon and I don't really care about the guy who's five miles behind and struggling. I don't know. I mean, you know, that that's that's where I think we are. But I think if you look at China, they're not worried, they're not having that, those discussions. They're like, what do we need to do to progress? And how do we do it? And and, and at what and which way can we? So, you yeah. know, you also have to you also have to consider your opponent, because not everyone's got the same uh approach. To how they want to win the game or whether they, they want to whether they just want to have a good time playing the game or they actually want to win the game. I mean, that, that there's a difference in that sort of perspective.
0: Yeah. And, and there's so much there, I think, to kind of dive into. Um, but one of my big takeaways is, as we discuss this and, and that I've talked a lot about in these debates is I think China has the ability in a way to kind of They grow that society organically or internally because they're communists. They can control what TikTok is going to show, where we don't have that ability. If we want to show these ridiculous videos, more power to you. And and while that gives some freedom, it also gives some negativity. But I think that our silver bullet has always been, at least what I've seen from my research, is lending a, a lot of itself to immigration, where not that many people are immigrating into China. But if you look at America, every single year, it's not even close that we're the the leader in influx of, of immigrants coming into America. And so I feel like if we always have a bit of a brain drain, uh, you know, competitive advantage against the rest of the world of new people here that are ready to work their tails off or bring a new skill set, um, that's where I think, it, you know, we don't grow stale. I think that's kind of the little, uh, you know, piece of magic that that we have that some of these other countries don't have.
1: Well, and we go back to what you again. We go back to what we talked about discomfort. Why are all these people coming from here? They're they're unhappy with where they are. They're uncomfortable, That's right. right? So we have a nation. full, I mean, I'm sure you know if if we were to go deeper, a guy named Ciamatas and a guy named Caderna are probably not you know Mayflower dep- deporters, right? I mean, we all we all have <laughs> people that came from other parts of the world, and they. Basically came here because they felt that they were getting a raw deal wherever they were, and those people tend to want to progress, right? They want to they want to change their discomfort into comfort, and so you know they create businesses, they create opportunities. So you know you hope that that's that's the shining model because you know at the end of the day you're right. I don't see anybody beating down China's doors to immigrate there and partake in that you know lifestyle. You know it's an it's an authoritarian heavy-handed surveillance police state, okay? Um, If that's your bent, then I'm sure they would welcome you with open arms. But, you know, I'm always reminded of those videos where they would have, like, you know, the Vietnam POWs or the Korean POWs where they would sit there blank, blank, staring into the camera saying how bad the United States was. And you know that was all coerced, right? So Mm -hmm. that, you know, to me, when I hear nonsense, like, you know, we've got all of these cultural problems and racism and whatever other things you know you want to throw out there why is everyone trying to get here then if it's such a horrible place right so so to me me, I think I think you're right I mean you know at the end of the day it's like we keep getting fresh blood in here with fresh blood but but uncomfortable fresh blood right people that want a better way and so they're going to focus on making things better for themselves and their family and in that process of, of progressing to make things better for themselves they make it better for the rest of us that are here because they bring new ideas and, and new ways of doing things and ultimately you know that's how society progresses it doesn't it doesn't progress by taking things away from people and collectivizing them and making a uh you know a system where everybody's just you know a number and and you know gets their rations from the government and you're told where to go and how to and how to go there and Versus, hey, you know what, I just created something, you can too, let's get there, you know, and, and you have, you know, you have the opportunity. And I think that's, that's the key word, right? More than anything, is we have opportunity in America to do whatever we want. You don't have that in the same, the same way in other places in the world.
0: Correct. Yeah. And I think that goes back to, you know, a free society has its flaws, but a, a free society is the one that's winning. And hopefully it, it stays that way. And I know there's a lot of different directions we could take this, but maybe a segue back into some of the investing side of things. Obviously, that's your your bread and butter right now as a chief investment officer. Do you get into a lot of these global affairs and really paying mind to kind of the socio socioeconomic environment when you're out there building a portfolio? Or do you not pay so much mind to maybe current events and look more at, at the raw numbers?
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm more quantitative in my approach to portfolio management, right? So I use, you know, computers and models to put together my, my portfolios. I don't really like look at, you know, long-term sort of societal structure and stuff. Um, I'm, you know, I look at, I, I, run, I run my models through computers and I'm really agnostic of whether I use IBM or I use Microsoft. It's whatever pairing of those uh, securities make the most sense for me to achieve my objective, uh, you know, obviously, there's there's long term trends. For example, I'm not a huge fan of the international marketplace right now because their economies aren't doing as well. It has it has it. That's not a comment on how they run their countries or how, say, the EU functions. It's just that you know you look at things like GDP and you look at you know economic indicators, and ours are just better. So you know, when it comes to putting a portfolio together, I may say at this point in time. It makes more sense to be more U.S. centric versus, say, you know, going back to a traditional, you know, allocation to international stuff. So I look at stuff like that, but not necessarily anything as far as, you know, what kind of what kind of news uh, they're making as far as, you know, how they're running their country, unless it's making an impact on the economy of that country and, and whether it's attractive to me or not.
0: Okay. And so right now, is it safe to say, like, you do a lot of your work based on algorithms? And um, is that where you're generating a lot of the numbers that kind of guide your decision making?
1: Yeah, my specific um, portfolios that I manage in-house, but, you know, this is a reminder, we have nearly 20 billion in, in assets that we manage, and we also use external managers. So they each have their own way. Some are fundamental where they're looking at, you know, the financials of each company and and they're, you know, they're they're making a bet on whether they like Tesla or whether they like G, GM or something. Uh but, you know, or there's there's a multitude of strategies, right? And we try to offer that to our clients uh because you know not everyone is going to be quantitatively oriented or fundamentally active portfolio management oriented. Some people may like you know, black boxes where they where they use certain data inputs as well. Some people like tactical managers. Some people are more of a buy and hold approach and just want you know your standard sixty forty model. And they're they're going to not touch it for twenty years. So we try to offer everything. But my my internal strategies, which is about I don't know, I'd say maybe a fifth of that twenty billion are are focused that way.
0: And what led you like over the course of your career or right now to the point where you're more guided by the math per se, um, than maybe taking some of those other approaches that you just alluded to? Was there like a tipping point where you're like, this feels right, like it gives me a certain level of confidence that I think that this is a smarter way to go about it?
1: Yeah, I I think, listen, I think, I think data is, is important and i think data is also you know over time tends to bear out i mean you know one of the metrics i look at we had a horrible year this year in the stock market if you look back you know the 100 years the stock market is up 74 percent of the time so people that soured on the stock market this year are apt to miss out the next you know three to four years because the market will rebound right so that's just one sort of anecdotal thing to think about, but, you know, also it's, it's, it's that structure, right? I mean, a lot of it is, is we are who we grew up as, right? So as I grew up, like we talked about West Point earlier, right? There's methodical, there's a methodical approach, right? There's, there's planning, there's structure. Um, So that inherently is more attractive to me than, because at the end of the day, when you look at a fundamental manager, for example, for my personal investing is I don't care how much data they throw at you, at some point in time, it's still going to involve a subjective decision. So that's just my bent. I, but but again, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea. So to me, it's like I'm, I'm apt to say, look, you know, I'll shrug my shoulders when the model doesn't work and say, you know what, it didn't work this year. But it doesn't mean it's not ever going to work again. But, you know, when somebody buys a dog stock in their portfolio, what's their explanation? Well, we looked at all the numbers and it didn't do well. And then you have zero guarantee. Of whether that's ever going to, you know, work out for you again. So, you know, it's it's six or one half dozen or the other, Brian. I mean, you know, yep. it just depends what 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 you should. And and I would say, you know, as an investor yourself, you should have a philosophy too, right? You just shouldn't listen to what you're seeing on financial television or or reading in the papers. You know, I think it's incumbent that we need to get educated as individual investors and say, this is what makes sense for me. And, you know, some of it could be like ESG stuff. Maybe you care about that stuff more than you do something else. And that's fine. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it, but at least, you know, you're making a commitment versus just being, you know, being a receptor of all everyone else's hype, for example. I mean, I could talk rings around around people uh, about how much I love quantitative investing, but that's me because I'm passionate about it. So my, my point to people is, you need to get the passion for your style of investing. What makes sense to you? What are, what are your outcomes that you're looking for? And does that get you excited? So I think, you know, I, I think, again, I'm, I'm all about accountability. And I think, you know, everyone needs to basically, you know, have a plan and be be certain in their plan and then find the pieces that help you execute your plan.
0: Yep. And I think that's at the core. A lot of what I preach is you got to have a plan. You got to have a philosophy because if if you just kind of go with whichever way the wind blows and, and follow the latest fad, you're kind of just betting on luck at that point because you might leave a good strategy for a bad strategy or vice versa, but they're all just snapshots in time that uh, you know some are better than others. So I think that's a good piece of advice there. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about, just kind of taking a step back to look at this year, this year of course has been the year of inflation and what's the FED going to do about inflation and then the trickle-down effect that that's having you know to investors so what's some of your take now looking forward to 2023 you know as we air this episode today as we discuss it's December 15th just yesterday the FED came out with a 50 basis point rate hike um, what are you thinking for 2023 not to put you on the spot but a little crystal ball there if you will
1: yeah. So what was interesting is, you know, the market was really hyped up to to hear that the Fed was going to lessen the pace. Right. So we had four consecutive uh, three quarter point increases right in the Fed funds rate. And then yes, yesterday they raised by 50. But the challenge is what the next step that the market is really looking for is when's the Fed going to stop. Right. And so, you know, prior to yesterday's announcement, and the, the subsequent press conference was that, you know, the Fed would go 50, which they did, and then potentially only do another quarter in the beginning, in the first quarter of uh, next year. That did not, does not appear to be the way Chairman Powell is thinking about it. He's thinking about raising rate, continuing to raise rates, not at three quarters of a percent, but, you know, some lesser amount. But for a longer period of time and keeping them up there in order to, you know, just sort of squash inflation. So that's what kind of markets are reacting to now. It's kind of like they like the the slowing of the of the rate increases, but they're really looking for an end. And right now the Fed, as of yesterday, has signaled that they are not going to lower rates until 24. And they're also going to probably raise. So we're at four and a quarter right now in the Fed funds rate. They're probably talking about getting up to about five or five and a half, which you know how they do that twenty five in January, twenty five in you know 50, fifty. Who knows? But at the end of the day, you're still about a percent and a quarter away from any kind of conversation of them stopping. And you know, again, it's it's higher rates are anathema to the to the stock market, right? I mean you want low rates because it makes it less expensive to borrow and you could put more money into the the business and then now and then you know obviously as, as rates go lower uh fixed income isn't as a exciting as a, as an option so more people will gravitate towards the stock market in the in you know to seek returns so higher rates are bad for the stock market because it makes doing sure. business more expensive and borrowing costs go higher so the longer that persists the more Logic would
0: dictate that the stock market would stay in a funk. So, and if I if I could just interrupt you really quick on, on that point, Tom, I have two questions for you. The first one we talked about emotion before. It, do you think some of what Chairman Powell is saying and said yesterday has to do with just how far off the Fed was in 2020, where inflation in the summer of, of uh, 20 or excuse me in 21 inflation was already creeping up? pretty quickly when they kept just telling us it's transitory, it's nothing to worry about before it even became a talking point. Do you think some of it is they just kind of got caught with egg on their face? And now he's taking this tougher stance of, you know, I'm here to do whatever is necessary to beat inflation. Because just a year ago, he was busy telling everybody, um, don't worry, inflation's going to pass right through the economy. You know, is he kind of just doing an about face in a way?
1: yeah so so, for again, without without getting too deep as far as conspiracy goes um i I can't believe that the Fed and intelligent people like they have at the Fed would have ever bought into that transitory argument um my my theory, and again, it's hard to prove, but um you know, you had you had an administration that was spending a lot of money they they liked low rates. Um, Chair Powell was up for re-election or reappointment, if you will, and so from that standpoint, um, you know, are you going to do the thing that, you know, is is not going to get you reappointed? So I think a lot of it, you know, and again, it, human nature, right? He he basically went along, and Janet Yellen, people like that too, were were calling it a transitory, and it's like, look, guys, you know better than this, and so the fact of it is he waited to raise rates until literally the month after he got reappointed in February of, 20, of, of this year. And literally in March, he started raising rates. So it's like, yeah, I can't, how convenient.
0: Imagine. Yeah. I can't <laughs>
1: imagine that he just woke up one day and said, Oh boy, I've been wrong all along. My good, my goodness. Yeah. No, it, it it's, you know, and then this is where we get into the emotion, right. And we get into the the pettiness, the, the, the pettiness that can come with people that, you know do things for self for self-serving reasons so okay so let's assume that we got to that place well then the other thing where, where the emotional stuff comes into the fact is the market didn't believe that jay powell had the backbone to stick it out so if you remember we had a rally last um, june because it was like ah the federal raised 75 basis points and then they'll pause there was that 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 conversation the entire early summer to mid-summer uh, up until he gave his speech in jackson Hole where the market was like we don't believe him we don't think the fed's going to do it we don't think they have you know they don't have the they they don't have the backbone and so they'll just pause and so until he stepped up to that mic and gave that infamous 8-minute speech in, in Jackson Hole that says no damn it I'm going to do this then the, then we had that nasty little sell off in, in in September but then again it was the same thing it's like okay the next the next iteration where emotions come into play is the market says to you well once we start seeing inflation peak, once we start seeing it trending downward, they'll have every opportunity to just, you know, back back up. So then that conversation started to be had again. When are they going to pause? When are they going to stop? And, you know, we have had a lessening of inflationary pressures. And if you want, I can get into my theory of why we have more so than, than just actions on the part of the Fed. But you know, now they're saying, well, we went from 9.1 to 7.1. That ought to be enough for the Fed to just say, okay, we're going to stop. And he's looking at history and he's got a very, very good guidepost, mile marker for history, which was the late 70s, early 80s, where they were doing this nonsense. That, That particular Fed was doing this nonsense of like, well, once we see two or three months of strong positive data, we'll just stop and then inflation would rear its ugly head again. And they were back on that that carousel that rate rate increase carousel so he's singing like i'm gonna just i'm not gonna get fired because i have my job for the next four years or whatever it is and i'm just gonna drive this thing down to two percent and the heck with what happens my my issue with that thinking is that i don't think he's the only player on the driving inflation Train. So that's kind of my tease. If you want to ask me what, what I think it is.
0: I do. Yeah, no, I I definitely want to get into that. And so a couple of, there's, there's so much to, to kind of digest right now, but maybe two things I want to hit on and don't let me forget the follow-up. I want to ask you when you create these models, these algorithms that help you pick your investments about don't fight the fed. So I want to come back to that in a minute, but before I go there right now with a lot of um, you know, average folks out there, maybe they don't consider them themselves investors. They're hearing in the news that good news is bad news and bad news is good news. And, and it seems so contradictory, like, oh, if we can just get unemployment to creep up, then the stock market will get really happy and maybe, you know, Fed chairman will slow down his rate hikes. And so you're hearing these different things and that at what point is it like, okay, the bad news is actually bad news, like enough about what they might do with interest rates in the stock market but we just don't want to see uh, facebook or whoever laying off tens of thousands of people like that's actually a bad thing for the economy
1: so the bad thing the bad news is bad news is is my my sort of simple answer to that is people spend a lot less money when they don't have a job right and that's the challenge that, that i think the fed faces is you know we've got all these openings and we've got a really low unemployment rate but i don't know that there's an actual uh you know one for one connection is 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 a person not working going to fit that opening i don't know but at the end of the day if they drive up if they drive up unemployment that means actual people are going to lose jobs they're not going to spend because you know you're obviously going to pull your horns in when it comes to you know any kind of discretionary spending and you know your personal economy goes to zero and we're not talking about a GDP decline of 1% or 2%. I mean, I don't know anybody who's, whose personal economy goes from, you know, 100% to 98%. It goes, you lose your job, it goes from 100 to 0 Or, you know, and you know damn well that, that unemployment and whatever other kind of benefits you get nowhere near replace most people's salaries. So that's my fear, is that, you know, when when you start seeing that unemployment rate creep up, and again, remember, they started raising rates in March. Okay? This time last year they were saying they were only going to raise 50 50 basis points for the entire year. And they've raised 425 basis points. Shit. Right. And 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 think about the last four whammies that we've got, you know, starting back to the summer, the 75ers, those haven't worked their way through the entire system. That's like a huge huge wave that still has to play out. And let's not forget the balance sheet that the fed acquired um throughout the, you know when they did their quantitative easing they need to unwind that and that's kind of stealthy it's not a very yeah. high profile hey i'm going to walk up to the mic and say ladies yeah, and gentlemen today we're raising 50 basis points they're doing that in the background and that's impacting right. interest rates as well so you know i i don't think we've felt we the economy per se has felt the full effect of and doesn't that
0: kind of support the whole idea of like why doesn't the fed just like take a beat and see what's actually happening rather than kind of keep the foot on the pedal you know before we even get to see the trickle down effect through the economy
1: Yeah, because we're going get back to that emotional thing right the, you know because that means the market's going to shoot up again because it is kind of like a coiled spring it's waiting for that language and once you get that language the market's going to go up there'll be a little bit of a wealth effect and you know it's it's going to say, see, we waited out the Fed, and we were right. And I think that's where the emotions come in for somebody like Chair Powell. I don't think it's necessarily a, uh, a a logical sort of reaction. It's like, damn it, I'm gonna I'm gonna crush the stock market. I'm gonna crush the 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 home the home market or the mortgage market. I'm gonna crush the unemployment because you know I keep telling people, everyone keeps thinking that the Fed is some sort of like precision instrument some sort of laser guided scalpel it's very blunt right it's an it's it's one of those you know those big switches you know at the movie theater or where it's like you just slap it down and up that's all that that's all right yeah it's very blunt So, you know, he's got that one instrument that he's wielding and it's not and you know, and it's not just going to affect the stock market or the jobs market or the housing market. It's going to affect all of it at the same time. You're literally going to shut off power to all of it. So, you know, if they persist in this aggressiveness, it's going to run us into a recession. And then you will have, you know, people losing jobs, people having a difficult people defaulting on homes. You know, falling behind on credit card payments, et cetera, et cetera, and that's why I think it's 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 in my view the logical thing would be like, listen, guys, uh, we've raised 425. We said we were going to do 50, so that's way more than we've ever done. It's going to take several months for this stuff to percolate through this economy. Why don't we just sit back and wait, with the caveat that if we don't see inflation continue to drop. We might have to move. We might have to move again, but he doesn't want to lose that momentum because he realizes that, you know, once that initial round of pain works its way through the economy, the impetus to start giving more pain is going to be very, very, he's going to face a lot of pressure um, not to do more.
0: That is true. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be almost impossible to raise rates if people can't put food on the table. And if you um, have
1: people out of work, Brian, think about it. The The impetus isn't going to be necessarily to just restart raising rates, the impetus is going to be to lower rates, to try to sure. stimulate the economy.
0: Sure. And so I feel like the conversation, all this in 2021 going into 2022 was kind of a let's try and pretend it's not so much of the trillions of dollars of stimulus that we pumped into the economy, the very long-standing enhanced unemployment benefits. It's like we tried to kind of brush that aside and said, it's because of the supply chain. It's this darn supply chain that's given us all these issues. And that's why prices are so high. You don't hear so much about the supply chain anymore. Is that something that we've kind of worked our way past or was that perhaps blown out of proportion in a way being kind of the scapegoat for all this.
1: Yeah. I think there was a lot of excuses um, that, you know, that basically masked the fact that we just had a ton of money out there. And what you had was people that were incentivized not to go back to work initially after the pandemic. And we still had the same amount of demand. Right. So yeah, you had the glitches at the ports because of, you know, pandemic sort of, you know, safeguards and things like that, or, or quirks like, you know, California saying that you can't operate a diesel in in, in our state and you got a major ports in, you know, Long Beach, and then somehow it's got to get to the interior. So there was, there was that type of stuff. But I think fundamentally what it was, was there was a lot of money that was dumped into the, into the market or into, into people's pockets. And we still had the same amount of consumption demand, Right. So you had less people making stuff, but you had the same amount of people using and buying stuff. So that was going to naturally permeate its way into, you know, higher prices. It's just the way it works, right? It's basic economics because, you know, demand was going to outstrip supply. So now we're seeing where those excess savings or people have gone back to work and are making that, you know, people aren't, you know, people that make stuff aren't Mm -hmm. stupid. They, they they figured out a way that, hey, we need to make more stuff because we're selling it at a higher price. Why not sell more? And so as a result, you know, prices came up, supplies sort of, you know, came back online, you know, the pandemic sort of, um, you know, safeguards or, or or you know, uh, restrictions have been lifted to some extent. So, you know, the shelves have everything. It's just that, you know, at the end of the day, it, there's, you know, it's it's expensive because that's, we still, you know, we still have people that were, You know spending that money and and you see it in in the sense that you know the savings rates had shot up post pandemic and now people are working through their savings and actually tapping credit to try to keep up with with their lifestyle
0: so what do you think happens now going all the way back to kind of where we started looking forward to 2023 um and you know we're not going to hold you to this we're not considering this you know direct investment advice or anything but do you see a recession in 2023 is that actually inevitable
1: i mean on the path that that the fed is on right now i i believe it is and you know whether it's it's so for so i'll 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 lead with this caveat i think we have been in a recession and it's not maybe a technical economic one but i think it's been an emotional recession which is you know, since probably the beginning of this year, right? I mean, we leave. We'll let the historians decide when the recession started. But think about it. I mean, you know, wages aren't growing as fast as inflation. People were buying, paying top dollar for stuff. You know that, that they couldn't find what they wanted, and then they were paying for for top dollar for stuff that was sort of a surrogate for what they wanted. Um, you know, they're blown through their savings. You know, it's it's getting to the point where food food inflation is high. You know, sort of all the basics are still high their wages aren't keeping up with it. So I don't know how that doesn't, you know, you see it sort of in consumer confidence, right? It mean, it's sort of like wears on your conscience. So, you know, when an official inflation, occur, or sorry, recession actually occurs, I don't know, maybe the middle of the year, but I mean, all of these, you know, yield curve inversions that we're seeing, they're almost uniform, right? Where short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. And we have not had a recession every time we've seen these yield curve inversions, but there's never been a recession without these inversions and they're all uniform. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's, so it's, there's a big, huge red light that's blinking out there that's saying we're going to have this. And maybe it comes, you know, in the spring or early summer, when the full weight of all of these sort of monetary tightening and higher interest rates, um, you know, impact the economy, you know, but, or just, you know, to me, 70% of the economy is driven by the consumer. So it'll be interesting to see how we how we hold up during the holidays but I have a feeling you know at some point in time people are going to throw in the towel I mean I don't know about yourself or for me but I'm I'm not over the top with like you know the the holiday season buying and all that kind of stuff it's it's nor like overly frugal but I mean it's kind of like we got everything we need maybe one or two extra things but it's it's not gangbusters so I yeah. think when people get to that point they kind of just you know shrug their shoulders and or you know worse yet say your neighbor loses their job right right i mean you're looking at at that person you see that family struggling it's like what are you going to do go out and buy a new car or go you know or go to on that you know two week two week vacation and rub it in their face so i think there's some of that too where there's a societal guilt because collective guilt where people say well you know what maybe i should just that could be me in a month or six months yeah
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. A lot of people don't talk about is it. kind of that momentum and people that aren't directly affected kind of blending into the people who are affected. Um, and one of the things that you did point out is, you know, we'll let the historians debate is if it's a recession or not. Um, and I think that's a good point is sometimes recessions aren't identified as a recession until it already passed. So with that said, is the term recession that we hear so much about is it kind of in a way much ado about nothing where if it does come or it doesn't come, it doesn't matter. The economy kind of is what it is. The stock market's going to do its thing. And furthermore, if we look historically, usually the sharpest downturn in the stock market at least is leading up to the recession. And then once we're actually really in the thick of it, of this terrible recession, usually that's when we see a pretty nice rebound out of the stock market. So, Should people be that worried about it? I think a lot of just average folks out there think like, okay, one day they're going to come on the on the news and say, hey, guys, it's January 24th and America's in a recession and then the world's going to catch on fire. It's not so black and white like that, is it?
1: No, it's, it's actually a disconnect in a lot of ways, because a lot of the stuff that leads up to a recession is a culmination of past events that sort of push us over the edge. The stock market, in a lot of ways, is an anticipatory instrument, right? So they're thinking about six months down the road, next year. So in a lot of ways, when you see a bad stock market like we've been seeing this year, it's it's in essence signaling that we're in for some tougher times up ahead. So you know, when when that when that actually comes to fruition in reality, we're like, oh my God, look at that! You know, we had our V eight moment, right? That we're in a recession. Okay. Well, you turn around and then you're like, well, my neighbor doesn't have a job. Uh, You know, the collection people keep calling about my car. Why is the stock market, you know, ramping up? Well, because, you know, because they realize that that's we've hit rock bottom at that point. So to me, I always think of it as uh, as, you know, I think of uh, Benjamin Graham, who is one of the, you know, fathers of value investing. Right. He said on a daily basis, the stock market is a voting machine but in longer term it's an adding machine right so every day we get sort of a, a peek into where we think the economy is uh, you know so up or down but then over time and again i allude to what i said earlier 75 percent of the time 74 percent of the time you're going to be up so to me it's like you should you should always be goals focused first and foremost don't worry about the actual numbers it's when we talked about accountability and getting yourself right as far as you know your investment philosophy and what you're trying to do and having a plan That plan should include goals. What is it that you want to do, right? And don't worry about the fact that I need to get 5% every year, year after year after year. That's not how it works. It's a question of like, do I want to send my kids to college? Do I want to buy a boat? Do I want to buy a vacation home? Do I want to retire when I'm 50? Whatever. Those are goals. And then you should structure your investments the same way. And, And to me, in my opinion, regardless of what we saw in the market this year, I still think that's one of the best, um, opportunities you have to make those goals and your biggest friend is not only the cumulative effect of the markets over over time it's time itself so i know um your 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 audience tends to be younger to me it's like the sooner you can get in this whatever you could put into it put it in there and let it work for you because you know you don't want to be 62 years old waiting for your investments to you know to hit the jackpot on your investments because then we get into that other problem of where People make emotional, bad mistakes because now their backs against the wall.
0: So, yeah, no, well said. And I think just another question I wanted to throw at you, because it's kind of like you have two sides of the coin here. You can boil it down to where, you know, a part of the people out there will say, you know, don't ever bet, you know, on, on the end of the world, because it's only going to happen once, you know, so you just kind of take pause, stay the course. And then you have the other folks out there who are going to say, you know, hey, America has $32 trillion of debt outstanding. Our debt to GDP ratio is through the roof. You know, if if things hit the fan again, if there was another coronavirus pandemic, can we just flip that switch and throw $3 trillion again into the economy, you know, in a heartbeat? So do we lose some of those levers to pull? Like, are we kind of losing some of our armor uh, as an economy? Um like, are there things to be worried about in that regard? Or is this just all a part of just, we've always built ourselves on debt. We've always inflated the economy and we'll keep on doing it.
1: Yeah, I, I can see both sides of it. I mean, there's the doom doom and gloom that, you know, we've got, well, think about it. There was doom and gloom when we had 20 trillion in debt. Now we've got 30. Uh, the way we get out of that, underneath that mountain of debt is through growth, right? And innovation and, and, and productivity. It's not going to be through austerity measures and things like that. But at the end of the day, I mean, you know, some of the spending that occurred um, during the pandemic was good and that it, it saved a lot of industries and people's jobs. And then there was a lot of it that was just gratuitous uh, pandering, you know, to, to select special interest groups. So, uh, you know, I mean, do I think so long as we can keep printing money and and, and there's faith in our economy to back it up? I think we're 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 always gonna advance. But you know, I don't know what that magic number is. Is it 30? Is it 35? Is it 50? Is it a hundred trillion of debt? I hope not. I mean, I hope I hope you know we become more responsible as we're going forward. But at the end of the day, like I said earlier, when we talked about immigration, this is still the best place in the world, the best deal that we have to get ahead. And so so long as we maintain that forward-looking optimism. And we innovate and we, you know, we, we transition and move on. I mean, I always tell folks, you know, we didn't leave the Stone Age because we ran out of stones, right? We found a better way. <laughs> right? We found a better way, right? So, so you know, whether it's green energy or, or, you know, smarter fossil fuels or whatever, that's one thing or whether it's, you know, uh, you know a whole different, I mean, we've gone from, think about where we were post-World War II, where we were in manufacturing economy. Now we've pretty much transitioned to a service economy. I don't know what the next step is, but it's all a tip of the hat to our ability as a, a you know, as a society and a country to allow all of these uncomfortable people to come over here and figure out ways to do things better. And I think that's ultimately what's going to slay this, you know, fiscal beast is, you know, having having a government, hopefully, that isn't spending as much on on things we don't need, but also growing the economy to the extent that, you know, we can eradicate a lot of that debt without it impacting us and, and running us into the gutter.
0: And so, Tom, maybe to put a bow on it here, we've talked about everything from going green to like you said, we used to be manufacturing economy, now we're service economy we got inflation the Fed, we got a million different variables and innovations and things changing. What, if any of this, has changed your take on investing this year? Or has it not changed at all? Was your philosophy, your models the same in 2021 as they will be in
2: 2023?
1: Yeah. I mean, look, at the end of the day, um, the future tends to, you know, doesn't repeat itself, right? It rhymes, so you know, no. The 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 tactics I've used are, are, you know, born through time, right? So I'm I'm I've made tweaks. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you, but it's not like I went to just you know bought all CDs because CDs now are yielding five percent and the market was down ten. It's like I have a discipline and I apply it, and over time my discipline works, right? And so from my standpoint. I think the biggest what I would also caution listeners against is be mindful of of the portfolio you know approach that tells you that they're going to get it right every time because that never market timing is is one of the one of the biggest problems that um, I think you know investors have is that you know it's it's a two it's a two edged decision first of all you got to know when to get out you got to know when to get in and it's not about market timing it's about time in the market. So when you think about that and you look at that, you know, sort of approach is, you know, I want a manager who tells me what they're going to do and they stick to the discipline. And so that's what I strive to do is I'm disciplined. I mean, yes, I'll make tweaks, whether I'm a little heavier international because, you know, the numbers seem to favor that or less so or more U.S. or more value or more growth or whatever. But at the end of the day, I'm moving in the margins and I don't want people to buy something you know, that that I manage and then turn around and find out that, holy cow, this isn't what I bought into. You know, you've, you've changed 180 degrees and, you know, that could cut both ways. That 180 degree pivot might've been awesome. And, and, you know, and, and I might've hit the ball out of the park, but by the same token, you're just as equally liable to blow it. So I've changed given the data that's available and reacted to the current you know to the current environment but i also haven't um abandoned my discipline so you know i mean that's kind of you know i hate to be cheeky but that's kind of saying it both ways right it's like yeah you want a tiger that's going to be a tiger but you don't want the tiger changing its stripes either
0: Yeah, and maybe just a tiny follow up to that, because I I often go back to, you know, Warren Buffett. I know you mentioned his mentor and Benjamin Graham before and Berkshire Hathaway. You know, if if ever they've shown themselves this year is a pretty good year for them, relatively speaking. But one of the things that Buffett took a lot of heat for for a long time was his being averse to tech, where tech was just roaring for so long. And he's like, I don't want to dabble with that stuff. I don't understand it. I only invest in what I know. So kind of to that point, I know you have a philosophy that you adhere to. What's your take maybe on things that are new per se, you know, crypto or green? I mean, going green has a little more history than crypto. But are these things that you're open to or how do they kind of find their way into a longstanding uh, philosophy like yours?
1: So what I think about is the way I approach it is I think about it being open but skeptical, So you have to the, the problem that I have with new stuff oftentimes is we tend to accentuate everything that's positive about being new. Right. It can do this. It can do that. Imagine this. Imagine that. Okay, great. I can. And I'm open to it. But I'm also have another part of me. And that goes back to being an officer right in the army. It's like what can go wrong? And so that was the stuff that, you know, whether it be crypto or technology, and we, you know, we, we we didn't really talk about crypto all that much, but, you know, it's similar, right? When we talk about technology, like, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff with social media and TikTok. But what's the dark side of that, right? What's the potential? And we kind of see it with TikTok, but we could kind of see it with crypto too. So, you know, my 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 approach is caution, openness and caution and skepticism. And, and, and I like to consider what the alternatives are because you know we know in in this world it never goes according to plan and that's what you should have in in the back of your mind as an investor is like say listen I get it but at the end of the day what if it doesn't go the way I want it to go and what are the potential pitfalls and can I live with that and so then if we get into a risk you know mitigation sort of scenario right it's like I see all these positive things And then I see all the the things that could be negative. So I've done that math, right, internally. And now I get to the point, well, am I willing to risk some of the bad things in order to win at some of the big things? And that's where I think, you know, sometimes people fall down when it comes to investing.
0: Got it. That's a, a great little tip there. And so I know we've uh, we've covered a lot of ground here, to say the least, Tom. Um, I really appreciated some awesome insights. Do you have anything that you might want to leave our listeners with, or that we didn't hit on? Yeah,
1: I mean, listen, if if you've got time, it's time in the market. So to me, it's like just let let you know the, the let history and you know probability work for you. I know they're kind of boring subjects. I know my son complained. I was actually I I, I can't believe that he complained that the class he did he liked the least at West Point this fall was history. I'm like, I loved history, right? So he's like, yeah. I can't stand it. I don't like memorizing all those dates, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> like, okay, right. But to me, like, that's what I would urge investors is like, look at look at the long-term trends, invest for goals, uh, invest for the long-term, right? And I mean, and he, you know, I have a philosophy and I talk about this with folks is, because, you know, you see those big charts, right? That have like the, you know, here's what the Dow did from like 1919 to, to today. And I'm like, well, I, I'm not, 102 years old so that doesn't pertain to me my philosophy is this you should invest as an institutional investor meaning invest into perpetuity but you also should invest as an individual and you should know when on that line you should get in get out de-leverage de-risk right so you should always structure if you're if you're a 25 year old you should structure your portfolio the same way the Harvard Endowment Fund does or, or, you know, any any long you know, institution that that is investing for the longer term forever, right? But when you start moving down that path, think of it as a train, right? You get to pull the lever of when you want to get off that train. So that's sort of a, you know, for my, my philosophy is don't invest for the moment, invest for the long term, but you should also know what moment you're in. And alter your investments as you move down the tracks. So that's what I would say to folks: go focus, invest for the long term, and but you're the ultimate, you know, sort of conductor of when you want to get off the
0: train. Got it. Got it. Great. Uh, great advice there, Tom. Really appreciate it. So ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank everybody again for tuning into the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. Today, we had the pleasure of hearing from Tom Siomadis. He is the chief investment officer of AE Wealth Management. Go check him out on the internet. Uh, lots of really cool tips and pieces of advice and a lot of experience doing what he does. So without further ado, uh, we'll wrap it up. And uh, I want to thank everyone again. And we will see you next time. Thanks, Tom.
1: Thank you, Brian.
2: This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Coderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Coderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC PAS, OSJ, 300 Broad acres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003, phone number 973-244-4420. Securities, products, and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Hiderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California insurance license number 0K04194.